Good day, everyone, and welcome back to the Western Ag Network's Fence Lines and Headlines. I'm Lane Nordland, and thanks for joining us here on YouTube, Facebook Live, and on the Lancast Ag Podcast if you're tuning in to the audio portion of today's conversation. We're going to be talking about a few of the hot topics out in the countryside impacting farmers and ranchers, and uh, joining us again this week is Mr. Russell Nimitz. Russell, uh, how, how was your week? You know, it's flying right by and it was pretty darn good. Of course, just like everybody, uh, you know, a couple of the big headlines we're going to talk about uh, in this show, hot temperatures and harvest, and they go hand in hand this time of year. And we're going to have a, another Molson Coors harvest update. And we're also going to check in with one of our friends at Columbia Grain for a special update on harvest safety. And that's uh, going to be some uh, some good Coors uh, content coming out of uh, both Wyoming and Montana there. And also a few uh, discussions around animal rights activists doing another push to ban slaughter. That, of course, being livestock slaughter in the county and city of Denver. We're going to dive into that. And off of that, we're also going to discuss how fake meat sales, what trend they're currently on. You're going to want to stick around to hear just what direction the uh, imitation meat sales are going. And we're going to wrap up today's program catching up with our good friend, Mr. Mark Rober, a Colorado rancher who also serves as president of the National Public Lands Council. He'll uh, shed a little light on some of the top issues impacting federal lands ranchers and their upcoming convention in Pendleton, Oregon. But as we mentioned, Russell, I still got a little bit of a cooler swag here in the background right now. But uh, uh, yourself and our teammate, Paul Humphrey, went down to Powell this week to catch up with some Coors Barley growers. Uh, it looked like a, a great opportunity to catch up with some great folks in the countryside. Yeah, absolutely. And the weather certainly played right into our hand for another harvest update. And as a lot of folks know, and that we've talked a lot about on many of these programs, Molson Coors still raises high country barley in Colorado, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. And Lane, as you mentioned earlier this week, we did slip down into the high desert of Wyoming in that Powell country and spoke with Rick Rodriguez, who's been raising Coors barley now for a lot of years, who told us this year's crop is one of his best. This is Bill Coors 100. Um, that uh, we started raising three years ago, I think, and it looks really good this year. Of course, we've had you know adequate rain, and which makes a big deal, and a perfect spring for barley. Um, the plumpness is like incredible; it's like 98 plump. Um, you know, we were running into some uh, green issues here and there, but we've been going pretty steady now for a couple of days now. So uh, we're hoping with these temperatures that everything will get ripe because it just takes a couple of hot days and everything will get ripe. He says that his family was actually one of the very first ones to raise barley for the Coors family in the Powell area, and the relationship has been great ever since. Well, you know, my dad was one of the original Coors growers when they first came here to this valley, and I can't even remember what year that was, you know, and so we've raised, uh, we've been one of their larger growers down here in the, in the Powell Valley here, um, and it's just always been a really good crop to us. Um, you know, they, they give out these grower awards every year. My, my dad's got two and I've got two, and I've actually got a Grower of the Year award for all their areas. So, um, you know, we've had Pete Coors in our backyard barbecuing steaks with us and uh, just great family to be around. And 
We just had a, a good relationship for a long time. Eric Summerfeld farms near Power, Montana, and says that his Molson Coors barley crop also looks good this year. It's been real good uh, for the summer follow barley. Anything that's been on summer follow has been anywhere from 50 to 70 bushels uh, in the mid 80s for plump and around 12 protein. Uh, recrop has been touchier and any place that you've got, you know, poor ground, it's been a little bit touchier, but uh, your good quality ground has been good, even with the lack of rain late in the season. And he says that Molson Coors is a great company to work with. They listen to the growers. Uh, they really take our feedback on things that we need to improve uh, raising better quality barley for them. They listen to, hey, this variety's too tall or it does this. Uh, they're great to work with as far as improving the, the barley's that we're going to be growing on, hopefully for the next 50, 100 years. And Lane, Bill Coors is the one who actually coined the phrase, barley is to beer as grapes are to wine. And those high country barley growers of theirs in Colorado, Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming couldn't agree more. So... Another fun harvest piece for sure, uh, catching up with Rick Rodriguez out of Powell, Wyoming, and of course, Eric Sommerfeld from Power, Montana. Well, I, I have to tip my hat to those Coors Barley growers that uh, make sure that I have a fully stocked uh, fridge for either Coors Original or Coors Light uh, here at the end of the day. So uh, tip the hat, boys and girls, uh, for growing that uh, good uh, barley for uh, Molson Coors. And uh, there's no better beer, in my opinion, out there uh, than a good Coors original as well but russ uh from there we're going to uh come back and discuss some activity by anti-animal agricultural activists down in colorado but first a few words from our friends at ag risk advisors ready for a real prf partner he was willing to track us for a year and provide that data back to us for a year that's a guy making a pretty big investment at Ag Risk Advisors, this isn't our first rodeo. We are one of the most experienced in pasture rangeland forage. Honesty, commitment, trust. Many companies use these words. At Ag Risk Advisors, we earn them. Well, as we come back again, a big thank you to our friends at Ag Risk Advisors, reminding producers also about the Livestock Risk Protection uh, Program for ranchers to partake in and protect their herds against uh, a sudden drop in uh, market prices. Even though we're having these higher calf prices, it's still important to protect uh, that important calf crop out in the countryside. But, uh, Russ, we're going to talk about... Uh, the end of the cattle cycle here now that uh, that deals with uh, a ballot initiative out of Colorado, which we never know what's going to come out of Colorado half the time. Yeah, we really don't. And, you know, we always talk about the opportunities in agriculture. Well, unfortunately, there's still a few challenges out there. And especially when something like what we're going to talk about next 
goes to the voters out there who sometimes, unfortunately, are not just as informed uh, voters and decision makers as we would like them to be. And this is a big one, uh, not just for Colorado, but could certainly have implications for the rest of us across the nation. That's right. You know, just two years after uh, the Colorado livestock industry came together and fought and successfully put an end to the ballot initiative, uh, that was called the PAWS Act, or the Protect Animals from Unnecessary Suffering and Exploitation. Now, this was a push to really do away with basic animal husbandry practices, such as AI and whatnot, that, that really is vital to animal health and success in the livestock industry. Well, back in June, our network's Rachel Gable reported about another ballot proposal that had petitioners attempting to outlaw slaughterhouses or processing facilities, whichever you'd like to call them, uh, within the city and county of Denver. Uh, I recently caught up with Robert Farnham. He is president of the Colorado Cattlemen's Association, and, and he told me more about how this proposed ballot initiative would not only set a dangerous precedent in Colorado, but set a dangerous precedent for livestock production nationwide, impacting both cattle and sheep producers. Well, if it, if it happens in the city of Denver, the county in Denver, you know, it's just one other metropolis, you know, in Omaha may be able to, have to do it. So you're setting a template for other geographic um, cities in different states that have kind of the same issues with the rural urban divide that we have in Colorado with our growth. And, you know, all across the western United States, you're going to have, you know, we're so rural in most of these states, but you're going to have metropolises that control our voting population. And if you allow one city in a county to do this and we don't fight hard against it, it's just going to be a domino effect. The next will be Portland, what they do to Oregon, you know, or Seattle maybe do to Washington. And so that's our big fear, not only from what we do on the policy side and what that template that sets, but two is as we go through um, what it does to our lamb industry. You know, I know we're here for a cattlemen's convention, but Superior Land Processing is the largest um, land processor in the United States, if I'm correct. But that's a huge pipeline for West United States. A lot of our cattle producers are land producers, too, at West United States. Yep. So. Now, uh, it's important to bring up the, the fact that the, the lamb market could be severely impacted by this. And, of course, the cattle producers as well. Because, Russ, uh, there's not many lamb processing plants that not only slaughter uh, and process lamb, or slaughter lambs, but also process and box lambs as well. I know we have a, a new facility down in Brush, Colorado that slaughters, but they don't break everything down. Uh, it goes back to the height of uh, the pandemic as well when... Uh, uh, one of our what, the uh, the co-op based uh, land processing facility. Uh, I'm drawn Rosen Mountain Mountain States Mountain Rosen. State. Yeah, what uh, State. was forced to close, and that was purchased by JBS, and the plant was dismantled. And at the end of the day, yes, this is a radical push by animal rights activists to to see a stop to processing of livestock, but it also would mean less marketing and processing opportunities for farmers and ranchers and really just strangling opportunities for livestock producers. But again, it comes down to the the voters. If this proposed ballot initiative is able to move forward, it would be on a ballot. And Colorado has been known to, to pass things very, very, uh, by a very small margin, such as wolf reintroduction and whatnot, just because it gets put in front of the electorate. Yeah, that's what I was just going to add. I mean, you brought up the wolf issue and of course, uh, you know, 
it was the the metro area of Denver that pretty much uh, you know passed that initiative, and of course that that introduction of the gray wolf, that apex predator, is underway as we speak. And then you nailed it, uh, talking about you know what's going on now with this Denver slaughter plan and and the fact that the lamb industry and the packing industry, the beef industry could lose uh, chain speed, important chain speed, all because of you know, one segment of, of Colorado when let's say 90% of the rest of the state is, is all for uh, animal agriculture. So now's the time for rural Colorado and rural America to really speak up and, and speak loud. No, I think uh, Robert Farnham with the Colorado Cattlemen's Association put it very, very plain and concise that uh, this would have a wide ranging effect, not only on Colorado producers, but producers in Western Ag Network country and nationwide, especially if more of those uh, larger metropolitan areas jumped on board with initiatives like that. And, and, and you know, we, we have seen a push, Russell, with uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, alternative proteins that really try hard to imitate products like beef, real natural beef that uh, livestock producers raise out in the countryside. And, and a trend we've been following for some time is that of consumers purchasing and eating plant-based meat alternatives. And U.S. consumers do remain somewhat interested in these uh, meat imitators, but higher prices have led many prospective return consumers to taper off their purchases and plant-based meat uh, sales are continuing to uh, climb down the scale just a little bit. We're seeing that beyond cost, lingering negative perceptions surrounding taste, value, and versatility are also obstacles the category has yet to overcome. According to a new report out from CoBank, the market for plant-based meat imitators has likely reached a tipping point as the initial period of exceptional sales growth appears to be over. Plant-based meat sales peaked in 2020 when consumers had more discretionary income and were curious about broadening their food spend in the wake of pandemic-era food shortages. But fewer than half of Americans who tried the product at the time repeated their purchase. Sales of meat alternatives have fallen steadily since 2021 and more sharply over the last year. In fact, Russell, volume sales dropped nearly 21% for the first 52-week period of 2023. So just uh, more uh, more consumer trends uh, uh, maybe pointing that they enjoy real unprocessed products like beef and lamb and chicken raised by hardworking family farmers and ranchers in the countryside. And, and I've ate these alternative products just to know what they taste like. And it does give a great opportunity for pulse crop growers in our region to, to have a market to process uh, those crops as well. But uh, as a beef producer myself, I, I get a little upset when they really, Russell, try to work on the, the hard work of, of farmers and ranchers who have paid the check off that promotes beef and, and the nutrition behind it. And, and, uh, and when they call it meat, I, I like how NCBA president uh, Todd Wilkinson, he calls the lab grown protein, which is separate than the, the plant-based it, it is separate. He calls it uh, what goop that, that goop. <laughs> yeah, I can't but, remember uh, exactly what he calls it, but uh, certainly this discussion is far from over when we talk about lab grown meat or plant-based meat protein. I mean, the plant-based protein we can kind of go along with, of course, just because we have we do have a lot of pulse crop growers uh, across our region that, 
you know, when those export markets uh, were shut down to them because of the tariff situation, they they had to they had to funnel a lot of that crop into that that market. But um, as we've talked before, though, I mean, both of us coming from a beef cattle operation, it nothing beats a beef hamburger or protein. Very true. And a Coors Light to go with it, or Coors Original, <laughs> if you're tough. Yeah, that's right. We're going to have more on fence lines and headlines. But first, these messages from NCBA. When it comes to the beef business, there's no room for gray area. The decisions being made in Washington affect the future of the beef industry, the livelihood of your fellow farmers and ranchers. Your National Cattlemen's Beef Association knows there's what benefits cattlemen and there's what doesn't. Visit ncba.org to learn more. Well, again, as we come back here today discussing some of those headlines that we shared on the Western Ag Network, radio, TV, and digital uh, formats throughout the week. Russ, uh, earlier in the program, we talked about uh, you and the team being out on the road uh, with our friends that grow Coors Barley, um, but also, you know, when we're out harvesting or anytime we're out on the farmer ranch safety safety really needs to be top of mind because i know we get into our routines and things just seem like they flow well sometimes out on the the farmer ranch and we get into our habits but uh uh harvest safety is is a top priority too well absolutely you know and a lot of times i think you know help these days uh is short and of course, we sometimes take it for granted uh, on our family-run operations, farms and ranches, and agribusiness uh, operations. Otherwise, too, and and but this time of the year is especially uh, busy for our farmers with harvest underway. And earlier this week, I had the chance to catch up with Columbia Grains Safety Safety Director Bill Spreeman, who shared some really important safety tips during harvest? You know, every year when uh, harvest begins, one of the things that we strongly encourage um, all of our patrons as well as our employees to do is uh, pull out that equipment that's been sitting, you know, since last year uh, and make sure you uh, go over it thoroughly and do all the preventive maintenance on it. You know, one of the worst things that can happen is uh, to have equipment problems on the road. Uh, it creates, uh, you know, a potential tragedy that could happen on the road because of uh, a maintenance thing. He says with more hot temperatures expected, folks should also pay close attention to heat exhaustion. Now this year, um, even even more so than others, uh, you know, we've uh, recently encountered a lot of heat. Uh, so one of the other things that we're watching our employees very closely for is uh, signs of heat stress. Uh, the same thing, um, you know, we recommend the same thing for our patrons. Our producers, a lot of times, you know, it's a family operation. Uh, and family, you know, they tend to uh, push themselves a little bit more. And so it's always important to be looking out for your fellow family members and looking for signs of heat stress. And Lane, Bill also shared, you know, and, and sometimes like we mentioned, we do take it for granted, but as farm and ranch owners and, and agribusiness owners, we really need to lead by example for the rest of our family members and employees when it comes to prioritizing safety 
on our farms and ranches. And, you know, I used to help the Montana Ag Safety Program quite a bit back in uh, my younger days. And, and there was a tagline that we always used, uh, safety is no accident. And how true is that? No, very, very true. And uh, again, safety and trainings, and, and it's also important and just making sure that uh, plans are in place and that uh, you don't take safety as a joke. It, it is a matter that needs to be uh, taken very, very seriously out on our operations because just like that, something can happen and we all want to take yeah. care of each other and our, our family and friends. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of harvest uh, machinery out in the field around my house here this week. So hopefully that's on top of mind for all those producers. And you know, what's also on, on top of mind, Russ, is a lot of folks, uh, a lot of issues impacting federal lands ranchers here this year. You know, uh, forest management, grassland management with wildfires starting to uh, pop up more and more here in the West. And uh, BLM's uh, conservation rule and all the other things. Uh, it's going to be a big topic that uh, is going to be discussed uh, coming up September 5th through the 7th out in Pendleton, Oregon uh, for the National Public Lands Council meeting. Yeah, that's right. And a few days ago in San Diego at the uh, Cattle Industry Summer Business Meeting, uh, one of the folks that uh, you had the opportunity to visit with and and catch up with was Mark Rober, the president of the National Public Lands Council from Colorado. And, and uh, he's just wanting as many public lands ranchers and others to join them, as you mentioned, the first part of September for their annual meeting headed for Pendleton, Oregon. Well, it is a busy time for cattle and sheep producers here this summer as a lot of federal land permittees are out there grazing on our landscapes and playing a critical role in land conservation and also in feeding here the United States consumer and across the globe. And for over 50 years, the National Public Lands Council has been a voice for those cattle and sheep producers who graze for just a short period each time on federal lands. And we're lucky enough to be joined today by Colorado producer Mark Rober. And uh, Mark is the president of the National Public Lands Council. And, and Mark, uh, how are things in Colorado here this year? Well, you know, we had a, we had a great, I say a great winter. We had a lot of snowpack and uh, we had good fall moisture. So, you know, the ranges looked really good this spring. So uh, everybody was optimistic and of course prices are good. And, uh, you know, now it's drying out. We're a little concerned that the monsoons haven't started yet, but uh, so everybody's a little bit concerned. Maybe we could get into fire season and, uh, but overall the grass is holding up. Cattle, sheep are doing well uh on the on the natural front i mean from the political and, and activist front uh they maybe aren't doing so well so uh but overall people are optimistic and uh you know the future looks bright so for our uh, viewers and listeners out there mark let's talk just a little bit more about uh, your family operation and, and how uh, federal and public lands really play a key role in just the success and the future of your operation well, in our operation, uh, we depend on both federal and uh, <clears throat> private lands, as well as uh, we actually do graze with some uh, state lease also. So 
it's all intertwined. It all, one relates to the other. We spend about five and a half months on federal land, so it's a pretty integral part of our operation. And without that, I mean, we would be a hobby farm. It just takes so much ground to manage uh, livestock, you know, and uh, <clears throat> so those acres are very important to us. Uh, I was growing up raised there by fourth generation on that place. Uh, we uh, always took it seriously about taking care of those lands. I actually felt like for a long, long time we took better care of the federal lands than we did our own private land. I've kind of shifted that focus and tried to treat it more as a whole. And uh, we uh, are seeing great improvements now everywhere. But uh, <clears throat> It's a, most of the West is really dependent upon federal lands grazing to really be business oriented. Otherwise, we are just kind of niche, yep. niche markets. Well, obviously, for a lot of our audience and, and Western producers over the past few months, one of those big, one of the biggest topics at all the, the cattle and, and, and livestock meetings has been, of course, that proposed BLM conservation rule. It was higher cattle prices and that BLM conservation rule. Truly, that was the, that was the talk of the conventions and, and out in the hallways and down at the bar at the end of the day. And uh, I guess for our viewers, maybe it's the first time they're, they're learning about this. Uh, we hear the term conservation, and to the public, that sounds, well, gosh darn, everybody's for conservation. I guess, why, why is this a misleading headline for federal lands ranchers? Well, it's, to say that conservation use is a use is uh, one of the big question marks that we have out there, because uh, I, th I think it gets down to what is the definition of conservation, you know? Everybody has their own definition. But the way this rule reads, conservation use is really non-use. It's not uh, conserving, it's uh, just, just that. It's not using it at all. And that's the big concern out there is that uh, you use a term that has already been decided in courts that they couldn't do and they brought it back. So, and it's, it makes no sense in reality, and how they rolled this thing out was uh, without consulting with anybody, without stakeholder groups, and then that along with uh, areas of critical environmental concern. Uh, I think that's what woke up some of our uh, partners to the fact that, well, this is really locking up federal lands from any use. So <clears throat> that's been our that's consumed a lot of time in the last four months of staff and 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 uh, PLC leadership in trying to stave this off and uh, get some common sense going here and at least they need to sit down and and look at the unintended consequences of what they're doing here. So that's. Uh, it's a big concern to the livestock industry because it really looks like this is a final push of, of doing away with livestock grazing. Now, obviously, it, it just seems that uh, 
producers are always on the defensive, but uh, that's really the role of, of groups like the Public Lands Council is to be that defense, but also have a good offense right. and, and celebrate some of those wins. But uh, obviously that public comment uh, period, it only got extended by 15 days. I, I, I know uh, industry advocates wanted that expanded to over 100 days. But how did that 15 day, just that little bit of a, uh, an extra time, how, how did that help the industry get more comments out there, but it also got the supporters of that rule to have a few more uh, days to get uh, comments in. What was that like though, just rallying support for Western states and also getting support from producers that don't have federal lands in their backyard? Yeah, well, the <clears throat> staff, I think, give most of the credit to them, but uh, Public Lands Council as a whole really did a concerted effort in those last 15 days of trying to tilt the balance a little bit and uh, we got over 900 producers sign on within those 15 days and onto that letter as well as other groups that uh, put in comments because that's what we were being told is we need your comments so we tried to flood them with it and uh, and with the dissatisfaction of the rule and the way it was rolled out. And it was a big effort, but uh, it showed that people care. And it, it, it hit a nerve, and uh, when you hit a nerve, you get a reaction, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, and, and there's so many issues out there, too, because as ranchers, whether on private ground or uh, a permittee on federal lands, you, you have to coexist with nature and, and wildlife as well. But one of those uh, key uh, key priorities, whether it's at the PLC meetings or uh, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association meetings, uh, one of those key issues is the Endangered Species Act. Um, the, the the government is celebrating 50 years of uh, of the ESA, and you know it has played a role in, in species conservation, but there's such a small percentage of uh, species that are actually delisted in an appropriate manner. Um, I guess, are ranchers against species conservation or are you against just uh, regulations that don't seem to fit, the, fit the, the plan that they were intended to follow? I think that's, the latter is what really people are against, the ranchers are against. I mean, we all enjoy wildlife, we all enjoy those species, but uh, everything, if we're gonna coexist with them, it takes management and under you know, current ESA rules, uh, the species takes precedent over everything else. And that, that is really the rub with ranchers is we aren't against any of those species, uh, but if they aren't managed properly and we don't have a chance to manage and protect our livelihoods and livestock as well as human beings, I mean, the species, we've had several grizzly bear attacks and uh, the past few months and I mean where do we draw that line of, of uh, when it, enough is enough and and that really is the rub with the Endangered Species Act it's not the act itself it's just how it's being used and we bring up uh, the Endangered Species Act and you know part of uh, PLC's mission is to educate the public uh, about uh, cattle and sheep production and, and, and the role that grazing plays in healthy ecosystem management and, and whatnot too. 
but uh, you know, you're, 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 you in Colorado, you're going to be challenged with, of course, uh, wolf reintroduction. Right. And that was narrowly passed by the voters right. of Colorado, and, and we know that there's wolves coming down from Wyoming already into Colorado. Uh, how important is it for producers to tell their story? Um, because obviously, we got to do that, but uh, when the population says, you know what, we're going to vote for, for reintroduction, even though wolves are naturally coming down, uh, how important is just that dialogue and trying to get the word out there more? Oh, I think it's extremely important. And, uh, you know, a lot of us in Colorado felt like if we could have had a, even a few more months, we probably would have defeated that initiative. But uh, the timing didn't quite work out. We lost by, I think it was half a percent. And uh, it's mainly the interesting thing with uh, how that initiative was written, wolves are only on the west side of the, of the divide. And uh, the majority of the population is on the east side. So they were actually voting, uh, didn't affect them personally. <laughs> and uh, they want the idealism of uh, wolves out there, but only on our side of the hill. <laughs> and actually it's written in where the, if one goes to the east side, they're supposed to tranquilize it and uh, take it back to the west. So in some ways, it's a, it's a weighted game of uh, we're going to keep them over there. And uh, I don't think they can do it. Uh, it's another one of those things where they may push the, their natural prey over to the east side. Well, then they're going to follow. So it's, uh, we are a big experiment about to happen. <laughs> well, it, you know, I, I know we were talking about the frustrations that producers have uh, with the Bureau of Land Management on that proposed rule that the administrator and, and her staff really have pushed through. And I know uh, unnamed BLM employees are frustrated with that too, just because they didn't have a lot of local or state regional input. But uh, PLC works with these agencies, and they are a vital uh, link to the success of, of cattle and sheep producers. H how important is it for the BLM and, and uh, the U.S. Forest Service lands that you know, ranchers graze on, how important is it to keep those um, MOUs that PLC has with these groups uh, at a forefront? Because I know that is something that is always recognized and celebrated at the, the annual meetings every single fall. I know we have a little bit of frustration on that BLM rule, but you know, we still have to work together and, uh, and have those leases. Well, Public Lands Council has always, uh, you know, tried to be partners because in reality, uh, it's not a dictatorship of the BLM telling us how to manage or how to run. Uh, it, everything works better if there's collaboration from all sides and you work it out. And that's the, the biggest frustration with this rule is that that was set aside. I mean, they just slapped it out there and you know, said, you guys got what you wanted. And it, it did, did kind of seem like to me that there was, they gave little parts of this rule and this was for this group, this was for this group, this is what you asked for, you got this. Everybody should be happy. Well, <clears throat> the carrot wasn't big enough <laughs> for the livestock industry because, uh, yes, we, they did put in the rule about the 4180 rangeland health, 
but they really, when it comes down to implementation, I don't think it, they'll follow through with it. I don't think they can. They don't have the personnel to do it. They can't. They can't do the rangeland health assessments now, and they're actually talking about doing more. So it was an ill-conceived uh, rule from the start. But but you know we have to be in partnership with them because it takes all of us to manage those grounds, manage those lands to the benefit of all the American public. And that, that's what we strive to do with both the U.S. Forest Service and the BLM. Uh, this is a little bit of a setback, I feel like, in relations with the BLM. Hopefully we can continue to uh, build on that relationship. You talked about the MOUs. We do have the monitoring, cooperative monitoring MOU. The Forest Service has signed it. We have not yet received a signed copy from the BLM. Uh, we're awaiting that, but those are important important collaboration points also and and we strive to to make it more and more of a partnership but we have to have willing partners yep well we we, we talked about uh, all these issues that that impact producers and obviously policy creation is, is the the foundation of all advocacy for plc and uh, all eyes in the fall time always head to Pendleton for the Pendleton Roundup. Well, all eyes are going to be on Pendleton a week before the Roundup for the uh, Public Lands Council annual meeting taking place out there September 5th through the 7th. Uh, what can people anticipate there, Mark? <clears throat> well, I think we've, we've got a busy agenda. I told staff, I said, uh, I guess we can fit all that in there. but. But we've got a lot of policy issues to come up, uh, dealing with the rule, dealing with with endangered species. Uh, you know, all, everything we've talked about here, we're going to bring up at the public lands annual meeting. And uh, <clears throat> but as I told everyone before, uh, public lands council, we're maybe a little different than a lot of groups, but. We always have fun at our meeting and developing policies. So, you know, come to Pendleton, ready to roll up your sleeves and go to work. But we'll we'll have some we'll have fun doing it. Yep. And it's a it's a maybe a little different crowd, you know, than than the rest of the United States because we deal with so much adversity. I mean, uh, you know, I like to relate back to one when I chaired a committee at NCBA, you know, I said, well, this is all federal lands permittees, so we don't need a break. We're just going to hitch up our pants and big boy pants and keep going. So that's uh, kind of our motto with Public Lands Council, and that's kind of the way it'll be at the annual meeting. We've got a lot of work to do. We're going to do it, but we're going to have fun doing it. So encourage everybody to come to Pendleton and get some work done and, and have fun doing it. Well, again, those dates, September 5th through the 7th, Pendleton, Oregon, where we will join Mark Rober and the entire PLC crew out there. And uh, we'll be reporting back from that event coming up in Pendleton. And again, Russ, uh, again, the uh, event going to be held September 5th through the 7th there in Pendleton. Unfortunately, it won't be during the roundup. That's a, that's a week ahead. Uh, before the Pendleton Roundup, but we'll probably start getting the party uh, started to let her buck a little bit, maybe put some horses there in the buck and shoots and get them flanked uh, and have a good time there at the PLC annual meeting.
Yeah, absolutely. And I do have a comment, but before, for more information, folks can visit publiclandscouncil.org and of course get registered that way and see a complete schedule. But yeah, I mean, leading into when we first saw that PLC annual meeting was headed to Pendleton, I know you were just as excited as I was. I've never been to the Pendleton Roundup and I thought we're finally going to get there and dang our luck. It's a week early, but we could definitely camp over but if nothing else we're going to help them get the party started early with plc and i would have to think a few coors banquets and coors lights along the way yeah i can't discuss straight whiskey anymore that uh, oh yeah just I, I would be I, I would be camping out on my face there on the on the turf there at the pendleton fairgrounds but uh <laughs> russ with that we had some great conversations here this week and uh, for our friends uh joining us make sure and subscribe to us on our youtube channel it's called western ag network give us a like and follow on facebook and also subscribe to the lanecast ag podcast where you can catch these conversations and more each and every day on behalf of the Western Egg Network crew, Russell Nimitz, Paul Humphrey, and everyone else that helps make the, the wheels move here on the Western Egg Network uh, train, I'm Lane Nordlund. We'll catch you next time.